Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Good morning. All right, my name is uh, Tom Dick. I'm the pastor of middle school students here at Southland. And uh, so I oversee about 240 or 260 um, of the most incredible students you've ever met. And uh, um, I also oversee a ministry called In Him Ministry. For, it's for kids with special considerations or, um, or foster families and that sort of thing. And I love my job. And occasionally I get to come up here and preach. So um, I'm excited about the message today. There's a, but I have a confession to make. You see, 9 o'clock is like the dry run. Um, I have a lot of material. So what's going to happen is this. And all the good stuff is at the end. I don't know why we do that. We always put the good stuff at the end. So I want to get there a little quicker. So you're going to see stuff on the, on the screens that flies past. And you're going to be like, wait, what? What did that say? And you're not going to see it. Just so you know. Because I'm going to move quickly. I want to move a little quicker through the first part. And, uh, and I'm going to talk about some world religions in that. But I want to, if you, if you actually want to go deeper in world religions, I've got a course that I taught called Confident Christianity. You can look at it online and you can get a lot more information there. So we've got to move quickly for this first half so that I can get to, uh, so I can get to some, some good stuff at the end. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to preach your word. Thank you, Father, for your deep love for us. I pray that this morning, as we learn about things of the mind, that you would encourage our hearts and that we would leave here with hope. That's my greatest desire, that those who struggle or have questions would leave here with hope. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified and help us this morning. Amen. In 1933... C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Regress. It's kind of a, the opposite of Pilgrim's Progress. It goes through and it highlights different areas of his life and philosophical and religious beliefs that he had because he started a Christian, he wandered far from the faith, and then he came back later in life. And so this book follows, uh, it's an allegory, so the, there's fantastic places and, and stuff like that, and it follows this guy named John as he travels the world, uh, and, and he tries to, and, and C.S. Lewis tries to put ideas into pictures and words. And it's a fascinating read. It's quite difficult. He actually went back and put a commentary around on the top of every page, which is merciful, and uh, to help you read it. But it's very interesting. It starts off in a place called Puritania, and uh, it ends up in front of a giant in a place called Zeit, Zeitgeistheim. Zeitgeist time. And right now, I apologize to those who are translating the message. So it's Zeitgeist time. And the giant there is known as the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age captures this young man, John, and he puts him in prison. A bunch of stuff happens, interesting stuff that we don't have time for. And Eventually, he frustrates his jailer who brings him back out in front of the giant. Now, this giant, the spirit of the age, is known as materialism. He's naturalism. And in 1933, when, when C.S. Lewis was writing, this was the kind of the, the, the overarching feel of the world. People were being indoctrinated with this idea that the natural world is all that there is. And C.S. Lewis wanted to show that the natural world, although it is very powerful in teaching us what is, cannot ultimately tell us why it is. 
And so he was showing that the, the, the big belief system of the world has some, had some very large faults to it. Had some very large faults. This thing of the spirit of the age, it still exists today. It's a little different maybe than 1933 or other times in history, but every age has always had what's called a zeitgeist or a spirit of the age. And when I say a spirit, I don't mean that it is necessarily uh, an evil spirit, a demonic evil spirit, although the ideas that are espoused in it are certainly demonic. Rather, the spirit of the age is this broadly accepted, it's almost unconscious collective insanity that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And every age throughout history has had this kind of philosophy that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In 2 Corinthians 10, it says this, For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. So what they're saying is this, though we live in a natural, material body, we also are waging a spiritual war. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish what? Every argument and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought obedient to Christ. See, Paul's writing this 2,000 years ago approximately, and he's saying that at that time, there is something philosophically that is attacking the minds of Christians. And he says something very interesting. He says that although it is ideas and words and philosophy, it is spiritual, and we have to fight it spiritually. And knowledge and truth is a spiritual weapon. It is. In fact, truth, the belt of truth, is the first piece of weaponry in the armor of God. So we need to think carefully because the this, we live in the same war zone, war zone of ideas today. And it's a little bit different flavor, but there's a lot of similarities. And we need to understand that when we're talking about arguments, philosophies, we're talking about something that is extremely demonic and destructive in God's kingdom. So what I want to do is, I, <coughs> pardon me, what I want to do is I want to back up right to the beginning of the world, literally to the beginning of time. I want to show you through different periods of time how different spirits of the age have kind of induced this collective insanity and put a wedge between God and culture, okay? So we're going to go right back to the beginning. And I want you to remember that all, East, all religions are actually Eastern religions. They all come out of the Middle East in that area of the world. So we're going to start there, we're going to spread to the East, go to the West, and then we're going to jump into um, our current time. When God created the world, people walked with God, and they were very close to him. But after the fall, they were pushed out of the Garden of Eden, and that communion, that close communion with God was cut off. And the first thing that people did was they turned to other, or among, like, they began to look for explanations in nature that weren't from God. And so the first sort of spirit of the age that we'll look at is called animism. Now, animism basically says that all of nature has a soul. All of nature has a soul. Everything is animated by the divine. So if you go down to the river, the, the river has a soul. If you go to a, sit on a rock, the rock has a soul. And so everything is animated by the divine. For us, we 
And, and that actually makes sense in the ancient context because for us, we can make sense of the natural world through sciences, philosophy, and that sort of thing. We can make sense of it. But without those things, people were left to kind of their own imagination to figure out what was actually going on. And it was animism, and so their belief was that actually everything was sort of divine. Um, although animism was being pushed to the fringes by the time Moses wrote Deuteronomy, they still had an idea of this divinity in nature, and they would sometimes fall into worship. This is what Deuteronomy 4 verse 19 says. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, the array of heaven, do not be led astray and bow down and worship them. The Lord your God has provided them for all the people everywhere under heaven. Okay, so people would see these strange uh, events in the heavens. They'd see these things that are very, very distant from us. They would be so unknown, and they would begin to worship them. Uh, some people, some modern scholars have said actually that the Jews were actually animists, that they believed that they also believed that nature had a soul, but that's not true. Uh, they, they reference things like, um, actually, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll notice something interesting. Trees are often very important. I don't know if you know that. But like Abraham talks about the oaks of Mamre. He passes by them. Deborah was sitting under a, the palms of Deborah. That's where she prophesied and judged from. Uh, terebinth trees were often mentioned. Even uh, the Garden of Eden has trees as its centerpiece. The tree was a very important thing and supernatural in pagan mythologies. But the Jews didn't believe that. There's just a lot of supernatural activity that happened around trees. And as they were trying to describe to their neighbors what was going on, they were using the language that was understood. So the Jews didn't believe that they were actually supernatural places. No, they weren't supernatural trees. They believed that they were supernatural places. And it's true. They were. They actually were supernatural places. Very many strange things happened around some of the trees in the stories. Now, animism was the first primitive sign or spirit of the age, and it set itself up to counterfeit what the Jews already knew to be true. And sometimes they fell for it. And when the Jews did fall for it, they were thoroughly rebuked by, usually by a prophet. And so in Jeremiah's time, they fell for it, and Jeremiah gave them this rebuke. You, Jeremiah, are to say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from underneath these heavens. He, God, made the earth by his power, established the word by his, world by his wisdom, and spread out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens are in turmoil, and he causes the clouds to rise to the earth and make the lightning for the rain and bring the, brings the wind from his storehouses. And then I just added this. It's from the next verse, actually. Everyone is stupid and ignorant. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's just good to have a good, you know, kick in the pants from Jeremiah. Everyone is stupid and ignorant. He's saying, you guys think that when the waves are crashing on the shore that they're alive. He says, no, that's ridiculous. They're crashing on the shore because God has made them that way. When you see lightning and feel the wind, you think that it's alive. Of course it's not alive. That's God that's causing the wind. That's God that's causing the lightning. This is what Jeremiah was saying. Everyone is stupid and ignorant, not because you are stupid and ignorant, but because you've forgotten who's actually in charge. That's what Jeremiah was saying. And the Jews had to really fight against this thing. And it makes sense. You know, remember how you felt as a kid when you went out in a storm? In a storm. 
You know, you, you, you'd see a storm coming. Like I lived on a farm, and I used to love to go out on the dike, on the, on the one corner of our dike, and we could watch storms coming up. And eventually I enjoyed it, but as a kid it was scary. And there'd be this thunder, and you'd wake up in the middle of the night, and you'd run upstairs, and, and you'd be like, Mom, I'm so afraid. And she'd be like, don't worry, it's just the angel's boy. And then your dad would be, no, they aren't. That's superheated air. It's spreading and clapping together. Everyone knows that, right? And you take all the mystery out of it, right? Well, the ancient Jews didn't have a mother who was weird and a father who ruined every picture, you know. It was not a romantic, an unromantic father, you know. The Jews didn't have that at all. They were only left with the feeling of fear. They were only left with that feeling of awe and overwhelm when they went out. So I actually don't fault them for believing that. They knew none of the science that we know today. None of it. All they knew is that when the weather came, it was a supernatural event. Sometimes they got it mixed up with false gods. And then Jeremiah, other prophets, would come along and remind them, it's not false gods. It's the one true God. But it was still a supernatural event to them. That's how they lived their world, in their world. Animism just like I described, is still present in the world today. It really is. In certain places in Africa, in very primitive places, they still believe that, the, that nature is animated by the divine. Although, uh, although it didn't last um, terribly long, and it's, been, and it's been gone in the Middle East for some time. But animism was replaced by something else. Polytheism. Polytheism is what replaced animism. Poly means, pardon me, many, Theism means God, so it means many gods. That's what polytheism means. What naturally happened is that as people developed and, and grew and, and expanded, the forces of nature that they thought were sort of supernatural actually became personalized. So now it wasn't that the water was animated by the divine, it was that it was an actual god. There was a god river. There was a god sky. There was a god moon. And so and they named them. The Egyptian god, Shu, for example, was the god of light and air. The Egyptian god, Shu, was the god of light and air. Tefnut was the god of moisture, mist, and rain. And then Baal of the Phoenicians, getting away from Egypt, they also had a god. He was the giver of life. He was the god of agriculture. And he was also thought to bring the rain. All the ancient people understood that the gods were responsible for all of the forces of nature. All of the ancient people did. All of them did, including the Jews. Including the Jews. They understood the weather to be a supernatural event. Many of them were polytheistic. Abraham was polytheistic before he met Yahweh, and that lingered on a long time. Even members of David, King David's family had household idols in their home. And if you, you often read that, you go, you guys, you're following Yahweh. He's just revealed himself to you, and yet you're still worshiping a household idol. What's going on? Well, we're living in a world with a very, very oppressive culture, where the culture was pressing in. It's kind of like us. And so, so those Jews who faithfully obeyed Yahweh understood that the lesser gods were just usurpers of his glory. They were counterfeits. And the Bible is kind of like this great big reset button. So they would go, 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 and then they'd become a prophet or a, or a leader, and he would reset, and he would remind them of who the real God was, even though they were surrounded by nations that believed in many gods. The oldest book of the Bible, it's Job. It's not Genesis. Job was written first. So you would expect that if Job is very, very ancient, and in its ancient culture, that it would speak to some of this, and it does. This is what Job says. 
Job 38 says, 38 says, have you entered the place where the store is snow, is the, the snow is stored? Not the snow is snored. Um, the snow is stored. And this is God, by the way, speaking to, um, to Job. Or have you seen the storehouses of hail for which I reserve in times of trouble for the day of warfare and battle? God is saying, guess what? It's not Baal who's bringing the, the, the storms. It's not Tefnut who brings the moisture. It's me. I have the storehouses. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't say, have, where were you when I put the cycles of nature into, into motion? He doesn't say that. They were an ancient people. He was speaking to them in terms that they understand. But he was resetting. He was correcting what they believed was true. He said, I'm the one who stores the snow. I'm the one who stores the hail. And then he reminds them, and by the way, I'm going to use it to beat your enemies, which is a great thing. And he did that with Moses, Moses' enemies. So if this is the case, that they're living in such a powerfully, uh, a powerfully oppressive spirit, how could the Jews tell the difference between what was counterfeit and real? And it's very simple. Yahweh revealed it to them. God revealed it to them. Over and over and over again through Scripture, we read how God intervened, revealed it to them, used a mouthpiece, used, um, used war, used exile, all these things to reveal who he was to them. The ten plagues of, of Egypt actually defeated the Egyptian gods. If you read them carefully, each plague, which looks like a natural plague, is not a, it, it, they actually worshipped frogs. They worshipped beetles. They worshipped the river Nile. And so every time God, God overcame one of the Egyptian gods by showing himself more power through Moses and Aaron, he was revealing himself to the Israelites as the God who was really in charge. He was constantly doing this. Today we have many disciplines that affirm what the Egyptians had only revelation for. Today we have mathematics and philosophy and theology. We have all sorts of disciplines and universities that help us to understand the truth, and they affirm the truth of the Bible, um, but the Jews did not have that. So the Jews, when they heard Moses say something like, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that was an extremely countercultural thing that Moses was declaring Ala Charleston Heston <laughs> in fierce intensity. I think that's, is that Charleston Heston? Is that Heston? I didn't actually know which movie it was from. It was from a website that said, which is the favorite, which is your favorite Moses? And I went with the one that looked the most intense. So, but this was very countercultural. This was completely unheard of. And they had to fight to keep this. They had to be reminded of it often. Now, Polytheism didn't last in the, middle, in the Middle East. It took on a new form as it moved to the East and the West. When it moved to the East, I'm just going to quickly go through this, it set up shop in places like India and, uh, and Pakistan and Bangladesh and those areas where people had moved. So after the Tower of Babel, when people were spread all over the earth, then they ended up in these places past the Himalaya mountains. And there the spirit of polytheism rested heavy. It was really, really heavy. And so they worshipped many gods, and they continue to do so today. Uh, the, the, the earliest sort of organization of these traditions, known as the Vedic traditions, they're called that because they, they, these beliefs got turned into songs and hymns called the Vedas, so Vedic traditions. The first one to kind of take form was called Hinduism. Now, the interesting thing about Hinduism is that it developed at the same time that 
uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were fighting over the divided kingdom in the Middle East. Is that fascinating? 800 BC is approximately when it was happening. And so Hinduism, it, according to Hindu, you're, Hinduism, you're taught that... Um, Okay, I should back up just one minute. Hinduism took polytheism, and they actually changed it a little bit, and they matched it up with animism. And you know what they did? They said, now not only is nature divine, and not only are there many gods, guess what? You are also a god. That's called pantheism. And pantheism was born in the Middle East with a marrying of polytheism, many gods, and animism, this idea that nature is animated by the divine. And it was really powerful. In fact, it's one of the only places in the world where these very ancient religions actually has never been moved. In the Middle East, there's, very, there's no polytheism anymore. In the West, where it went to the Greeks and the Romans, there's no polytheism anymore. In the East, it set up camp and it stayed there. And it locks people into this situation where they have to work for their salvation because Hinduism teaches that you are constantly paying off the bad things you did in a previous life. It's called karma. So everything you're experiencing now in terms of bad going on in your life or suffering is because you screwed up in your past life and you need to pay for it. But when you die, you will be reborn into hopefully a higher life form, and you'll be born and born and reborn and reborn until you reach moksha, which is you become united with the divine. You actually cease to be a person, and you become one with the universe. Well, that's actually a hopeless way to live. You never know when you're good enough. Suicide rates in India are the highest in the world, because if you can imagine you're born in a very, very low place, how are you ever going to get out of that? You're never going to get out of it in this life, so you might as well kill yourself and start again. And there's all different ways that people try to pay off karma, but we don't have time to look at them. Out of, uh, out of Hinduism, a man named Siddhartha Gautama came, and he became the Buddha. He became who was known as the Buddha. He lived at the same time as Hezekiah and Manasseh. So at the same time that we're reading about Hezekiah's tunnel and Manasseh being born, the most evil king that ever ruled in, in, uh, in Judah, we have out in the Far East, the Buddha is searching for the answers that he could not find in Hinduism. Hinduism couldn't answer his deep questions. And so he left, and he decided that the problem with mankind was not that they were ignorant, that they were divine, but rather the suffering was the problem. Desire led to suffering. Because if you desire something and you don't get it, you feel bad about it, and that's suffering. So if you get rid of all desire, the desire for food, the desire for community, the desire for uh, sex, the desire for any of these things, if you get rid of it, then you can't suffer because you don't want it. Can you see how devastating that is? Do you see how opposite Jesus Christ is? You know what Jesus, Jesus says in John 10.10, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. He says, I don't want you to give up your life. I want you to experience life. Jesus understood Jesus didn't teach the eradication of desire. He spoke of the redemption of desire gone wrong. Desire is not the problem. The problem is that we've been corrupted by sin so that when we desire, it leads to sin. But the answer isn't to get rid of desire. It's to redeem it, and only Jesus could do that. And one of the last great... Uh, teachers that came out of Buddhism was Confucius. Confucius was mainly a philosopher, and out of his philosophy came many political systems, but we don't have time for that. 
That was polytheism in the East. Polytheism also went to the West. In the West, it was shown as the pantheons. It was, uh, in Greek, you had Zeus, the king of the gods. Very different idea. There he is, look at him. <laughs> All strong with lightning and such. Okay, so... In the West, in the East, you had different gods, Vishnu, Krishna, uh, Brahma, all those. In the West, they took on different names. And you got Zeus or Jupiter or, or Roman or Roman? No, Romulus. And in the North, you got Thor and Odin and all these. They, but they were basically the same idea. Many gods governing the world. But something interesting happened in Greece. In Greece, there was around 300 B.C., another movement that started. And some men who were very deep thinkers, like Epicurus and Plato and Socrates, these men started to reject the idea of the gods, and they started to think about what might actually bring meaning to life. And so they invented the discipline known as philosophy. And you can just imagine, there were different philosophical groups, and they would argue with each other. They would go up to the Areopagus, and they would have discussions and debates with each other. One was Stoicism. Stoics are, oh man, it would be horrible to be a Stoic. Pardon me. Stoics believe that, that all of life is cyclical. And that after 30, I think it's 38,000 years, I don't know why, that might be arbitrary, I have no idea. The, all of the earth is going to be destroyed. It's going to be recreated. And in, in 38,000 years from now, you and I are going to be having the same conversation. Everything is determined. Everything happens exactly as it has always happened. Woo! <laughs> right? Awful! They didn't believe in emotion. They believed in asceticism, getting rid of all of beauty and all that stuff. They were just, they were the monks, right? And then you had the Epicureans. They were completely different. They believed that the meaning of life was to find pleasure and pleasure in abundance. So they, the, uh, Epicureans, were the birthplace of hedonism, which is the pleasure, it's the worship of pleasure, still exists today. And you can imagine, with superstitious beliefs still hanging on in the cults and the temples, the Epicureans and the Stoics debating, that was the culture in Acts 17 that Paul encountered. When Paul talks about going and seeing the, the idol to, or the, the, the altar to the unknown God, he's talking about this kind of environment where some people believe in a pantheon, some people believe in Stoicism, some people believe in Epicureanism, and, ev and there's every flavor in between. Can you imagine trying to witness to that? It's like an awful family gathering, right? <laughs> like, good night, which uncle do I have to talk to first today, right? So, that culture actually is a snapshot very close to where we're living today. Very close. And those ideas born in philosophy, Greek philosophy especially, they have really taken root. And today what you find is that you have both the philosophy of the Greeks and the polytheism, the, pan, uh, the, uh, the pantheism of the East. And those are the two cultures. We have just as dysfunctional a culture as Paul in, encountered. The West was profoundly influenced by philosophy. If we were to zoom ahead through the Dark Ages and through the Renaissance, we end up in the time called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was an extremely important time for the world, and this is why. During the Enlightenment, known as the Age of Reason, 
uh, many, many, many scientific discoveries were made. And many of them were made by Christians because they said, we expect, we see that God isn't God of order, so they expected to find order in the universe, and they did. And the, it's actually quite ironic that these Christians who were motivated by their faith to discover actually were the ones who, who, whose disciplines eventually drove a wedge between God and his people. Because while these men believed in God, they largely focused on human reason to get there. So a man, for example, just one example, is a man named Spinoza who died in 1677. He taught that supernatural events do not happen and that we should focus on nature and not on God. Ethics should be determined by what humans determine to be right or wrong. He believed there was a God, but that he was impersonal. By the time 200 years passed and Charles Darwin came onto the scene, Charles Darwin, the, the, the man who wrote The Origin of the Species, who gave a form for evolution to take place called natural selection, he said um, he actually was born a believer. I don't know if you know that. He did not die a believer, but he was born a believer. And, but by the time he wrote The Origin of the Species, God had been relegated to a casual and often sort of unemotional observer in the universe. Darwin gave evolution, he gave nature an existence without the necessity of God. Then Friedrich Nietzsche came along, and he gave philosophy. He removed the conscience of philosophy, and that had a profound impact on Nazi fascism. And you can see how God was removed from nature, then God was removed from, actually, theology even, and God was removed from philosophy, and then God was removed from politics, and we were left with the Nazis and the communists. Two godless, completely godless political theories. And look at the devastation. Since that time, science has become the supreme authority on truth. Science has. And even philosophy, the study of knowledge, has, been, has had its conscience removed. Because there are very few Christians. There were, in the 1950s and 60s, there were very few Christians who were philosophers anymore. The ones who were, were losing their faith, and there were very few that were strong enough to stand. Fortunately, now, if you go into Christian universities, Christians outnumber uh, non-believers. But the but that continued, and the black and white morality of the 1950s after the Second World War, it made sense at, it, this, this morality made sense at first, but it quickly became too cold and impersonal. So in the 60s, the kids rebelled and the sexual revolution was born. And that was followed by the hopelessness of gener Generation X in the 1980s. And that set the stage for the insanity that we live in today called postmodernism. And now the spirit of reason that came in during the Enlightenment has been replaced by what's called the spirit of relevance. Everything is relative. Everything is relative. Whether or not you realize it, you live in a world where there are no longer absolutes. We live in this fog of postmodernism. The Bible is not authoritative. Truth is relative, so if you believe something is true and I believe something different is true, that's fine. They can both exist at the same time. Values are personal. God is some sort of old grandpa in a rocking chair. If you want to believe in God, that's fine. Churches are relevant. Christians are uninformed about their own beliefs. And university students, for all the knowledge and information they have, appear to be getting dumber. I'm not kidding you. If you don't believe that, 
I would say write down this, write something down in your notes. Family Policy Institute of Washington. And go to YouTube and put in the Family Policy Institute of Washington and watch the video there about how our current university students interpret reality. It's insanity. It's insanity. There is, the, there is nothing that is real anymore. We can create our own reality. I believe, like Paul, who, lived in, who went to Athens, we can identify two dominant spirits in our age and kind of like a little half-stepbrother, which I'll explain. Um, the, first is a re- the first is a renewed and ferocious new atheism. And the second, for those who kind of don't want God but still want to feel good about themselves, there's something called the new spirituality. So let's deal with them one at a time, because these are extremely relevant for where we're living today. New atheism. Now, I'm going to tell you a little secret about new atheism. It's not new. Not new at all. It's been old. It's very old. Uh, There have been atheists. Buddha was uh, significantly an atheist. Plato was essentially an atheist. And so uh, atheism has been around for a long time. If there's anything new about this brand of atheism, it's like the viciousness that it attacks with. It's absolutely vicious. It's ferocious. And and there are statements within new atheism that absolutely strain incredulity. Like, they just blow your mind. They seem so ridiculous. For example... The British poster boy for the new atheist is the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. He famously said that religion is a disease of the mind. He also said that teaching religion to children is child abuse and less harmful than sexual abuse. But somehow, somehow this man has managed to tap into the angst of all these young atheists. And he has a huge following. Huge. Dawkins, he's been cloned into uh, these parrots on Facebook who love to quote him. They're up for a fight, but they're not up for face-to-face coffee, I promise you. Very few take me up on it. Now regarding, and by the way, you'll never win on Facebook, so stop trying. (laughs) Right? Hey, they clapped in the first service too. Just stop trying. I have 3,300 friends, by the way. I'm extremely popular, and I have won no one to Christ over the internet, just so you know, as popular as I am. More popular than Donovan Friesen. <laughs> All right, now, regarding the brand of atheists that you find on Facebook, I say leave them alone. Don't engage with them. It's not actually worth your time, but there is another kind of atheist that absolutely is. There is the kind of atheist who doesn't understand the questions that they're asking or where to look for their answers. They are genuine seekers of the truth, and I promise you, if you master just three sort of topics, maybe four or five, you can actually help them over the hurdle to faith. Here, I'm going to give you just three today, though. The first is evolutionary biology, the arrogance of intolerance. They say that Christians are arrogant because they're intolerant. And the deeply personal, uh, deeply personal questions, such as, why is there evil in the world? But not in the world. Why does evil happen to me? Those types of questions. So let's talk about evolutionary biology. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to just bother you for a minute, okay? So just hang on. When I sit down with an atheist, and they say, oh, I can't believe in Christianity. You guys all believe that the earth was created in 10,000 years, and I could never believe that. I'm an evolutionist. That's what science teaches us. I say, fine. I've got no problem with evolution. I'm actually serious. I'm not lying, okay? Just so you know. I don't, I'm not an evolutionist, but I don't have a problem with evolution, and this is why. There are many brilliant and godly Christians who believe in evolution. Many. 
The doctrine of creation, which says that God created the world, says that he created the world. It does not say how he created it. And we can have wonderful conversations about what we believe about that, but it actually doesn't. The, the early church fathers said that God created the world, and that's where they stopped. They didn't say how he created the world. There's a man named Francis Collins. He was the president of the Human Genome Project. Okay, the Human Genome Project. He's a smart dude. They mapped out the entire human genome, billions and billions and billions of bits of information. And he wrote a book called The Fingerprint of God. It gives tremendous, he says that it gives tremendous glory to think that God could create a single-celled organism that had everything necessary to evolve into conscious human beings. And you know what? He's right. It does give God a lot of glory. And could God have done it? Yes, he could have. You know why? Because he's God. He's God. And God can create the world however he wants. Uh, but... I'm not an evolutionist because I don't think the evidence, even in science, supports it. And I don't need evolution. See, if you don't believe in God, you need something. You need evolution as explanatory power. But if that's the reason you're not becoming a Christian, I just want you to know that's fine. There's Christians who believe in evolution. It's not the end of the world. And you might say, whoa, 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 that's a really slippery slope. You might say, yeah, I had a friend. He was, an old earth, he was a young earth creationist, became an old earth creationist, then he became a theistic evolutionist, and then he lost his faith. Yes, I know, and I can give you a bunch of authors who exactly followed that. But you know what happens if you sit down with an atheist and you say, some Christians believe in evolution, you know what they'll do? They'll find themselves on a slippery slope towards Christianity. And one thing that the church needs to learn is this, that we need to meet people where they are as opposed to expecting them to move over all the way. And if there are pieces of, of, that we can remove for them, obstacles that we can remove that are keeping them from giving their hearts to Christ, guess what? There are going to be people in heaven who believed in evolution. There will be, because it is not your belief in how God created the world that saves you. It's your belief in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And thank goodness for it. So we need to quit making creation about into a heaven and hell issue. I promise you, I have sat with atheists, and when I say that to them, they are stunned. Because that is their big thing. They're like, well, I can never become a Christian because I believe in evolution. I go, that's fine. <laughs> there goes the wind out of those sails, right? Read The Fingerprint of God by Francis Collins. It's very, very interesting stuff. So, I'm not an evolutionist, but I tell you, if you would just get past that, you would actually help people. So, evolutionary biology, it does not have to be a nail in the coffin of God. Plus, we have something that evolution needs, by the way, God. Because, as Chris said on Mother's Day, you still need God to start it, right? Big bang, maybe a big sneeze by God, I don't know. <laughs> Big Bang, there had to be something that started the Big Bang. That's what evolutionary biologists cannot give you. And there must be a point in time when all of the material of the universe that was not living started to breathe. And they've never been able to figure that out. They've never been able to figure out. They keep saying, oh no, give us enough time and we'll figure it out. Well, I don't know about that. I actually have your answer if you want it. It's God. And it helps people when you say stuff like that. They'll sometimes go, oh yeah, you're right. There is a problem with evolution. Then the next thing is the arrogance of intolerance. Christians are very arrogant for being intolerant. Well, this is how I respond to things like that. I ask them this question. How do you feel about my stance on euthanasia being wrong? 
when they say to you, to me, well, that they think that you're a dumb, ignorant, and uncompassionate human being, you can reply, well, who's being intolerant now? And then you move on. <laughs> you see, this idea that tolerance is a good thing is absolutely stupid. There is not a single person in the world who lives an intolerant life. Not a single person. Even the people who are the most inclusive of all religions and all types of lifestyles, you know what you'll find? They are not tolerant of people who are intolerant. It breaks down. It doesn't exist. You won't be tolerant of somebody stealing your wife from you. You'll become quite intolerant when that happens. So we need to remember, intolerance is a big, fat lie. Number three, deeply personal questions such as why is there evil in the world? To these questions, you have to become a pastor. You have to. You have to sit and put aside all those difficult things, all the, all the truth, and you just have to sit and listen. People might say, like, I could never believe in a God who creates a world with such evil in it. But what I help them understand is that God is not the source of that evil. In fact, when God becomes the supreme ruler on earth, there will be perfect peace. And until that happens, I trust his goodness to make beauty from ashes. And that's when you tell them your testimony, because your testimony of how God has helped you through suffering is the most profound thing you can tell somebody that is actually struggling with this question. Most people who ask it aren't actually struggling with it. They're trying to just stump you. But my God has met me in my suffering and continues to do so. That's how I respond to the new atheists. What about the new spirituality? I'm going to tell you a little secret. There's nothing new about the new spirituality. It's very old. It comes from the East. Rabbi Zacharias wrote a book called Why Jesus. It's fantastic. And it talks about uh, when pantheism actually was welcomed into North America in the early 1900s. Fascinating book. So what do people like Oprah, Rhonda Byrne, Deepak Chopra, and Eckhart Tolle believe about new spirituality? This is some of the things they believe. They believe that in humanity's good to a fault. They believe in the absolute potential of humanity's good. There are some intellectuals out there right now who are saying that we're living in the most peaceful time in history. This is, this is well-known, most peaceful time in history. And I'm going to explain to you how he, they figure that out. They figure it out by saying this. If you compare how many people live today and how many people, what the mortality rates are, how long we're living, how many wars there are, and then you go back to, say, the Dark Ages, which I skipped over, and compare to how many people were in the world then, per capita, there are far few, fewer people dying horrible deaths today. Now let me tell you about numbers here, for example. I'm just going to play a little, little math game. I'm terrible at math, so this is probably wrong, but you'll get the idea. It's a principle. Let me tell you about how you can play with per capita and ratios and percentages. Did you know that I am actually aging faster than Pastor Ray? He told me this. Pastor Ray is currently 61, and I am 36. That means he is 41% older than me. But in 10 years, when I'm 46 and he's 71... He will be 35% older than me. He, the percentage will close. Therefore, I am aging faster than Pastor Ray. 
Not only that, when we are 771 and 746 respectively, Pastor Ray will be only 3% older than me. Interesting, hey? You can play with numbers if you want to. Not only that, but 365 days for Pastor Ray is approximately 161th of his life, which is much less than 136th of my life. So in other words, time is passing faster for me? Something like that. You see how we can mess with this? Look, when people say we're living at the most peaceful time in history, they're forgetting two things. One in every four abortions ends, one of every four uh, pregnancies ends in abortion. 25% of all birth or all pregnancies end in abortion. You cannot tell me we are living in the most peaceful time in history when we would be murdering children. Not only that, we've never lived at a time when somebody could wipe out as many people in one button with one press of the button and start a nuclear war, we've never lived at a time when that is more possible than right now. So we might be taking a breather between world wars, but we are not living in the most peaceful time in history. Ideologically, we are living in a very, very, very dangerous time. Very dangerous time. So this idea that we're going to be entering a utopia is ridiculous. Well, not entirely ridiculous, because when Jesus returns, we will, right? They just have the wrong person in charge. Number two, what else do the new, spiritual, uh, the new spiritualityists like? They love their reinvented Jesus. They're always making him different. They're, he's not crucified. He's not the Son of God, because we're all the Son of God. Eckhart Tolle said this, The Word of God is limiting, not only because of thousands of years of misconception and misuse, but also because it implies an entity other than yourself. God is a being. God is being itself, not a being. See what he's saying? He's saying, you are a God, you just don't know it. Guess what that is? Pantheism. It's ancient. It's very, very old. It's the same argument. There Jesus is not crucified, non-judgmental, non-exclusive, and enlightened. He's enlightened. The last thing that these, these people of new spirituality believe is that everything is me or you-centered. Authority means that you have given authority. Spirituality means that you have decided something is spiritual. They say the path to God is like a necklace with different beads, and people can put on different beliefs, and it will still look like a necklace, but it will look different for everyone. Truth means nothing at all. There's a very, very famous book written by Rhonda uh, Byrne from a number of years ago called The Secret. It was extremely influential. And in The Secret, it talks about the law of attraction. That is, that if you project any thought, positive thought, into the universe, that you will get whatever you're projecting out eventually. If the universe wants to send you what you are asking for. It's the law of attraction. I actually knew somebody who believed this. And they, I said, what are you talking about? How can you believe this? She said, no, no. I lost a book, and I was very disappointed. So I thought very hard about the book, and then I found it. It works. And I said, a book? She had no car. She was living on welfare in inner-city Winnipeg. I said, I can think of other things that I would rather attract to myself. <laughs> like a job. <laughs> but it's insanity. Uh, they say in The Secret, if you can see it in your mind, you will hold it in your hand. If you can see it in your mind, you will hold it in your hand. Now, just before you get too hard on those people, if you don't think that has not 
infiltrated the church, you're kidding yourself. It has 100% infiltrated the church. You know what it's called? Prosperity gospel. It's the law of attraction. Instead of the universe, I picture my prayer to God, I project positive thoughts to God, and I can have it in my hand. If you don't think it's influenced Christianity, you're kidding yourself. And this is why it's so deadly. Both new spirituality and new atheism are motivated by liberalism. They don't want to do what God says is important to do. And in that way, they're a formidable form formidable spirit of our age. But they have a little brother. Now you're going to see Star Wars and then Avatar, which are two movies that talk a lot about new spirituality, and we don't have time to explain why. And then we're going to go on to something else. In between this new atheism and new spirituality is something called agnosticism. And in our community, agnosticism is what is on the rise the most right now. And I'll tell you why. Agnosticism means not knowing. Gnostic means knowledge. A means not. So if you uh, are agnostic, you don't know. And it seems like an impenetrable fortress to people who believe in it. Because they'll say, well, I just don't know. I mean, how can you prove anything at all? How can you prove anything at all? I can't know. You can't know what's true and what's not true. You know why they hide behind it? Because in this town, they sometimes, want, they sometimes don't want to believe in God, but they don't want to go to hell. So if they're just kind of agnostic about whether God is real or not, maybe he'll have enough mercy on him to take him into heaven if, they, if he's actually real when they die. On the other hand, there's people who are losing their faith because they don't have the right answers, and they are becoming agnostic because they don't want to talk about it with their relatives. They don't want to say, yeah, I'm actually an atheist. They'd rather say, I actually just don't know. That's safer than saying you're an atheist. But agnosticism is one of the weakest, it's one of the... It's one of the most ridiculous things you can actually say that you don't know, that you can't know. I'll prove to you that you can know things. Let's say, for example, I kicked you in the teeth. <laughs> I was up very late when I drew that picture, by the way. <laughs> let's say, for example, okay, let's say I got kicked in the teeth. I'll make it personal. I will not be agnostic about the fact that I was just kicked in the teeth. And neither will you about my experience. You will see my broken tooth. You'll see my bloody gums. You'll see the soul mark on my forehead, right? Nobody is agnostic about that. So there is some knowledge that we can have certainly. Do you understand? Guess what? I am as certain about my relationship with Jesus Christ as I would be if someone had kicked me in the teeth. In fact, my relationship with Jesus Christ is informed by more than just what I sense in the world around me. It's informed by more than just scientific observation. My relationship with Jesus Christ is informed by philosophy. It actually makes the most sense. It's informed by theology. It's informed by even mathematics. And most importantly, my relationship with Jesus Christ is informed by my relationship with him. But do you understand how evil these beliefs are? They're evil. New atheism if you are an atheist, you have no hope, because once you're dead, you're gone. And by the way, there's no answer for humankind's problems, just being nice isn't cutting it, apparently. And if you believe in this new spirituality, you have been given something worse than no hope, you've been given false hope, because it doesn't hold water when it's put under scrutiny. So what can we do? First of all, don't panic. Just pause and say, we're not... This is not the end of the world yet. 
Your kids entering university are going to face this, but we're going to equip them. Second thing is think. We cannot afford to be ignorant about what we believe. We can't afford to be ignorant about what others believe. We can't afford to. The next thing is learn. Did you know that for all the religions of the world, for all their attempts to explain the world supernaturally, or even just merely naturally, none of them could offer what Christianity offered? Did you know that? None of them explain the world like Christianity. Learn that. Know why. Next, love. Learn to love. There's going to be times in our lives when it's necessary to stand up against evil as an organization, you know? evil places, evil thoughts, evil, evil governments. There will be a time for that. But you know what is very powerful? Just loving your neighbor. And if we all truly actually just loved our neighbor towards Jesus, you know what you'd find? We wouldn't need to change the government because the government would be changed by the neighbors we've loved. Jesus preached loving our neighbors. And finally, stand firm. Israel had to fight to hold on to their unique doctrine that God is one. And so often the powerful spirit of the age took ground when they compromised. And they compromised with the worship of lesser deities and they suffered horrible consequences. And now it's the church's turn. It's our turn to stand firm. And the stakes are just as high. There's nothing new about this spirit of the age. It's as old as animism. But there is an end game, there's an end times game afoot. And we need to recognize the signs of our times. The harsh blindness of new atheism and the ignorant tolerance of new spirituality are setting the stage for something that could be far more evil than that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices, but that you give us knowledge to fight ignorance, that you give us experience to to give quality to that knowledge. And Jesus, I pray that for our church, for our children, that they would know you both through the life that they live and also the truth that they learn. Oh, Jesus, that they would have those two things going for them because that is formidable. Then no great schemes of the enemy will stand against them. I pray that we would walk out of here confident that our faith is as unshakable as Moses' faith in the desert. I love you, Jesus, and I thank you for what you have done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.